Well, good morning, church. So good to be together. We do not take this for granted. Listen, we're going to be in Mark chapter 4 today, so if you want to look that up on your phone or a paper Bible, Bible classic as we call it, you can, uh, you can find it and flip over there now. Um, just want to kind of start off with that comment on bring your uh, parents to church Sunday. I love that. I love seeing kids drag their parents to church rather than kid, parents dragging their kids to church. It's just something that we celebrate around here that happened to my family earlier this morning. We were, uh, we were at a cottage uh, all week long and my kids were like, we're going to church though, right? And we're like, you know, we're like an hour away and it's also online and they're like, we're going to church, right? And it was not a question. And I love that. I love that you all have created that environment for my kids. So like personally, I just want to say thanks. Today we're kicking off a new series here at church called Good Question. And I, want, I don't want you to miss the premise of this series. The point of the series is just this, that the best answers are usually found on the other side of a good question. The best answers are usually found on the other side of a good question. I'll tell you that's um, it's important. A friend of mine, and a mentor of mine, was, uh, was explaining it to me one time. He had started a business years ago. And it was time for him to move on. He's the entrepreneurial type. It was up. It was running. And he was tasked with finding his replacement. And so what he did is he put the call out. He did some recruiting. He gathered resumes. He did the interviews. He did everything just like he's supposed to do. And uh, one guy was like head and shoulders just far and away above and better than everybody else who applied. And so it was pretty obvious, like impeccable resume, work experience, MBA, like, like the works. And he's telling me this story, and he goes, so the final stage in the process that I had laid out was like just getting lunch with the successful candidate. You know, and so before the job was officially offered, it's just this informal kind of, um, honestly, at this point, it looked like the onboarding was starting up. And so he goes, I'm about halfway, three-quarters through my grilled chicken Caesar salad, and it hit me. He goes, this guy, all through the entire process, the recruitment, the interviewing, and now three-quarters of the way through lunch, he never asked a single question. Not one. He couldn't think of it. And so pretty soon he just stopped talking, and he just let the guy talk for a little while, and he never ask a question. And so he knew right then and there, he's like, this guy can't be the one. This guy can't be the candidate because he's never going to be able to find out whether or not, he's never going to be able to find out the right answer if he's not asking any, let alone good, any questions. And so by the time the end of lunch comes and the guy is expecting like this very dramatic, you know, like job offer or something at the end because he knows it went pretty well. He knows he's getting a lunch out of it. And my friend, he settles up the bill, and then he looks over at the guy, and he says, you know, I'm sorry, we're going to take it in another direction, and uh, and I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to apply. And the guy was left dumbfounded. Why? Again, because he didn't bother to ask why it went so poorly at the very end. He'll never know. He'll never know what the right answer is because he didn't bother to ask any questions, let alone a good one. This is important, church. This is important, not just like the business kind of corporate America, although that's a free takeaway. Ask some questions, usually a good thing. It's important in, in life. Like some of you have been in professional counseling. The rest of you should probably go into some professional counseling. We have been through a lot this last 18 months. Nobody came out unscathed. And listen, you sit down in the counseling room and, and that person is going to start asking you some questions 
They always do. I've been in this process to varying degrees for like 15 years now. You're like, yeah, it sounds about right. Uh, it all started maybe 15 or so years ago when I was in uh, my, my seminary program. I'm sorry, seminary program. Still working through some things. And, and it was required, right? Because apparently standing up on stage on a week-to-week basis with a microphone and presuming to speak on behalf of God, like that will just land you into some counseling. And I get it. Like I hear it now. That kind of makes sense. That's probably a good thing. And I was forced to go in, and they asked a lot of questions while I was there. I thought it would be different in, in later rounds when I could identify the thing, like, this is why I'm here to a very specific degree. This is what I need help with. And still, with the questions. And it's super frustrating. Super frustrating to pay somebody like $100 an hour just to have them ask you questions. And I'm like, I'm paying the plumber $100 an hour, and they don't come over and ask the leaky faucet how it feels about the leak. They just fix it. And I'm like, now I am the leaky faucet. Don't ask me how I feel about that. Just fix me. But those of you who've been through the process, you kind of get it. That's how the process works. That's how you arrive at the right answers. They always follow a good question. And so that's what I want for you today. That's what I want for you throughout this series, to ask good questions. And it's not just me. I, I firmly believe that the heart of God is behind this and wanting you to ask the right questions. I say that because of the questions that we see Jesus ask in the Gospels time and time again. Church, it does not take long. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospel writers, it doesn't take long for Jesus to immediately turn a conversation in and start asking questions of the people who came to him initially. He asked over a hundred questions that were recorded in the Gospels. And just like, think about it. Like, stop and think about that. The Son of God came from heaven to earth and asked over a hundred questions. I submit to you, I do not believe that was for his sake. I think it was for ours. And so we're going to learn how to ask good questions. We're not going to look at all 100 questions. That would be a fun series. We're going to look at four. And just as we get into it today, I want to give a, a highlight, a preview on what's coming up next week. Uh, because you have someone, you have one person in your life uh, who needs to see the power of God. Uh, they believe maybe, and they've seen that God cares. They simply need to know that God can. And so next week, we're taking a look at the question that Jesus asked, do you believe I can help you? Do you believe I can help you? And we're going to see the power of God. We're going to experience the power of God together Next week, if you've got that person who needs to see that, who needs to hear that, needs to experience that, next week is the perfect weekend to bring them on to. But this morning, this morning we start off in a different place. It's not the power of God. It is the fear of the things around us. Jesus asking his disciples, why are you so afraid? I mean, on one hand, the answer to that question is so remarkably simple. It's never been so easy to answer. Like, are you kidding me? Why am I afraid? Because... Because, Jesus, there's a lot to be afraid of in this world. I know, I know, I know. But, but beyond the, the surface fear that's right in front of you, 
What's maybe the one fear below that fear? Why are you so afraid? Let's jump into the story. We're going to go to Mark chapter 4, as I said, in verse 35, we pick it up. As that day when evening came, Jesus said to his disciple, let's go over to the other side of this lake. They're on the Sea of Galilee, sometimes called the Lake of Gennesaret, depending on who's writing. Mark here calls it the Sea of Galilee. Let's go over to the other side, verse 36. Leaving the crowd behind, the disciples took him along, that's Jesus, just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him, and a furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. 38, Jesus was in the stern, and I love the, the picture, sleeping on a cushion. Like, it wasn't enough that he was sleeping. He brought a cushion with him. It's just awesome. A um, couple comments on this. Uh, number one, starting off, is I, I underlined it. I wanted you to see it. It's so important, so incredibly important that we recognize that it was Jesus' idea. Jesus was the one who said, let's go over to the other side of the lake. That came from God. That came from Jesus. It wasn't their idea. The storm comes up, and just kind of some history and some geography on this thing. Uh, Sea of Galilee is maybe 13 miles long. It's maybe eight miles wide at its widest. The, the, little, the little section that they were trying to skip across from here, uh, five, five miles at best. Not far. Most of you drove more than five miles to get here today. It's five miles. It's not far. It's a journey. It's a distance. They have traveled before. Like, they knew the route. They knew that they could make it. They've experienced storms before. It's just five miles. As Mark is telling the story, you kind of get the sense. It doesn't matter if it's five miles. It may as well have been 500 miles. They were rowing. They were sailing. They couldn't make it across. It just wasn't happening. And I love that, that we got to stop in that point because that, that fact is that Jesus was the one that got them in the boat in the first place, and Jesus was the one that was sleeping in the stern, and they were the ones working. They were the ones hustling. They were the ones trying to get after it, trying to get to shore, and it just wasn't working. Why? Because if God isn't in it, you can't force it. And when God is in it, you can't stop it. And this storm, we have to understand, is a unique kind of storm. So in just a moment, we're really going to get into this thing, and I'm going to ask you to think about like, what that storm is in your life, because I firmly believe that God put these stories in the Bible, not just because they did happen, but because they do happen. And I'm going to ask you what the storm is. But first, before we go into it, we have to kind of do some identity work and to start to figure out, because a storm isn't a storm. Storms are used a lot of times in the Bible in the story of God. And they're used differently. And so we would be wise to try to like sort and figure out what our storms are to find the right story of God that matches it. That's that deep, that's that ex exegetical work that we got to like figure out together. For example, and I referenced it last week, Jonah found himself in a storm. When God comes to Jonah and says, I want you to go to Nineveh. And he gets in a boat and sails the opposite direction of Nineveh. That was a land journey, too. So he took a different transportation mode entirely. He sailed almost halfway across the world, trying to, at least, to get away from Nineveh. And so a storm comes. And it's worth pointing out that in the Jonah story, a storm comes onto Jonah because of his disobedience. 
And in the Mark 4 story we had before us, a storm comes on the disciples because of their obedience. And so it's worth asking, like, what is the storm that I'm in? And what's my role in response to it? Now, that, that's, a, that's a sobering question. I don't know the answer to But some of you can look behind you and see that there is a wake of destruction and rubble and broken relationships. Some of them weren't your fault. And some of it may have been. And before we even go further into the story, we need to to do this check to ask, what's my responsibility here? That's a good question for another time. Because today, we find the disciples in the boat, in the storm, with Jesus sleeping out of obedience because they said yes to God. And that's important. So, to recap, they're drowning, Jesus is dreaming, and they're getting drained. So they wake him up. Verse 38, the disciples woke him up and said to him, Don't you care? Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up. He rebuked the wind. He said to the waves, quiet, be still. And the wind died down. And it was completely calm, just like that. And he said to his disciples, here's our question. Now, why are you so afraid? You still have no faith? Now, it's a, good, it's a good question. It's a good question when you start to analyze it on a slightly deeper level than the first read. He asked them, why are you so afraid? Obviously, because we think that we're going to drown. Why are you so afraid? Because the wind is beating against us. Because the water is splashing on us. We're not supposed to be getting wet in a boat, Jesus. There's a lot to be afraid of. No, no, no. no, no. Guys, guys, guys. You, you have seen me in the last chapter of Mark. You have seen me. Ask somebody with an incurable skin disease to reach out his hand, and immediately, I healed it. Guys, you have seen me very callously ask a man who was paralyzed to stand up. And he did. Guys, you have seen me go into the waters of the Jordan River, and a voice, a literal voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. Now, I'm just going to ask you one more time, what is it now that you're so afraid of? The weather? We can start to see it's a little bit more than the storm, isn't it? It's a little bit more than the weather, isn't it? It's a little bit more than your storm and mine, isn't it? Because he says, do you still have no faith? Verse 41, they were terrified and they asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. And then Peter stands up and declares his allegiance to Jesus no matter, nope. And then Peter says, I've been in this storm before, we can get it through, nope. Story just ends. I love that this story just ends. 
Sometimes you wonder, why, why would he just like end the story? Did he, did he forget that he was telling a story and then just moved on? No, no, no. Small plug. Wednesday at noon, we do an online Bible study here at Encounter. Uh, and every week, I take a look at just an, another book of the Bible and just focus on how it points towards Jesus. It's on Facebook Live. The videos are dumped on YouTube channel. Um, doesn't matter, though. Last week, it was on Mark, which I love that it comes together like this. Uh, Mark is told in three distinct acts. Act one, two, and three. And he ends each act with the people being confused and wondering. Uh, this is the ending of Mark chapter, or Mark act one. Mark, uh, the act three ends with the women coming to the empty tomb after Jesus had died and been resurrected from the dead and comes up to, to the tomb and sees that it's empty. And someone, the angel says, why are you here? He's not here, he's alive. And the women were terrified and afraid. Mark is telling his story in an intentional way, not to answer the question for you, but just to simply give you the facts. This is what happened. This is their response. Fear and confusion every way. Forget about what their response was. What's yours? It's so clever the way he writes us into the story. I want to make a couple points on this. Number one is um, the geography of the place. I'm, I'm not a meteorologist, guys. I know, it's surprising. I can see it on your faces. That was shocking to everybody. Uh, I did do some research. I did a Google search in preparation for today. You're welcome. I came prepared. Uh, fun fact, Sea of Galilee is like 680 feet below sea level. Uh, that fact coupled with the proximity of the Mediterranean Sea and the mountain range nearby, it creates these storms that like come out of nowhere. The, the best thing that I can like relate it to as I'm reading about this and I'm learning about it and trying to apply it to our context, brisk January morning, you look outside the window and you got like 20 inches of snow on the ground. And those of you who've lived here for a couple of seasons, you're like, that's Michigan being Michigan, right? Lake effect snow, we call it. And you, you, you got to go and like wake up the kids for school yet too because you know it's not canceled. Unless you live in Caledonia, Canceldonia, then it's absolutely canceled with a light dusting. But I'm not bitter. Like, it's cool. I'm good. I'm good. Lake affects now. They're used to it. There was a part of their rhythm. It was a part of their life. Along with that fact, you remember where Jesus found these guys? I mean, one of them he got from a tax collector booth. He didn't know anything about water. The rest of them, the rest of them grew up on this lake. They were fishermen. Jesus found them cleaning algae and beer cans out of their fishing nets after being on the water all night long. They knew this stuff. They've been in these storms. Like, I'm just, I'm pointing this out just to, just to simply, like, have us recognize that for them to know lake effect storms happen, they have been in lake effect storms, but for this thing to be so bad that they think that they're going to drown, it must have been bad. Real bad. That's kind of sometimes the way storms work, don't they? Sometimes it's the intensity. Sometimes it's the timing. And sometimes it's both. Sometimes you show up and you are so proud, you're beaming, because you have had the number one best sales quarter in your life, the entire career. You've never moved so much product. But you also know 
that the company still isn't healthy. And so you are looking around the room and going, nine years on the job, 12 years on the job, 15 years on the job, 11 months. And it may have been the timing or it may have been the intensity, but listen, the storm hits hard and you don't want, and you wonder, you wonder if maybe this is the one you don't go out of alive. This job's good, the marriage's good, family's good. It's just the daggone routine appointment. When the doctor doesn't make eye contact and gets right down to business. And she just starts talking about options and timing and incurable. And you're just going to have to live with this. And you know that life is never going to be the same. It's the intensity, it's the timing, the storm is too much. Church, I have learned that everything in my life, every sphere of my life, can be going along just fine for me. But if something happens with my kids, listen, the rest of my life plays like an instrument out of tune. It doesn't matter what notes are played. It all sounds wrong. And the storm rages. The thing of it is, every single one of us, every single one of us are either coming into a storm, we are in a storm, or by God's grace, we are just about to come out of a storm. It's happening. At some point, all around us, it's happening. My concern for you, my, my great fear for you, isn't that you would find yourself in a storm because that's inevitable. My fear is that for the first time in your life, you will be found in a storm alone. Because for the last 18 months, we have systematically like pulled ourselves away from the key formative relationships in our life and we've been divided over it. And then when something happens, when the storm swells and we wonder about drowning, there's nobody else around us to help us through it and to tell us that it's going to be okay. Please invest in community. Invest in community even when you don't think that you need it. Because by the time you do, it's likely too late. Invest in community, if not for yourself, then for them, for the other. For someone that God is going to use you to pull them through their storm with, it is that important. Community in a group, community in a serving team, community, your next step could look like moving from an online worshiper to an in-person worshiper, just saying hi, live and in-person. I had a friend come up to me because of schedule changes and one of us being gone for 12, 12 weeks, come up to me this morning and give me a great big hug. I'm so glad to be back. I'm so glad to be together again, and there's nothing like it. And then she looked over at me, and, 
And I thought she was going to say another nice thing, but she said, I woke up this morning, and the only thought that I had was, I can't wait to go hold babies at 9.15. I'm like, okay, all right. I'm not taking that personally at all, but good for you. It's good. It's good. We need community. We do life together. Invest in community. The storm is on the horizon. I've got some good news for you guys, though. Jesus has some good news for you guys, though. I want to share two pieces of good news, all right? Uh, the first thing is that nothing that we could have done, nothing that we could have worked for, nothing that we could have achieved whatsoever. But the first one is just this unilateral movement of Jesus that you are in the, the storm with God's presence, that Jesus is in the boat. He's in the boat, and that makes all the difference, doesn't it? The presence of God makes all the difference. Sometimes we think that just because we invited Jesus into our lives, because we've shown the world through baptism that we've been raised with Christ, that like that's good enough, and that the storm won't come. But the reality is that the opposite is, is mostly true. The opposite is that the storms come with that much more intensity, because of the spiritual warfare that comes in, that Christianity is not a playground Christianity is a battleground. And so the storms come, the promise of God. Jesus, remember, in the book of John, take heart. In this world, you will have trouble. Take heart. I have overcome the world. And we want to skip ahead to the part where Jesus overcomes the world. But the first part of that was, in this world, you will have trouble. That's a promise. But the promise of God in in that passage, and also for us today, the promise of God is not that the storm won't rock you. The promise of God is that the storm won't sink you. That's the difference. In this world, you will have trouble, but I have overcome the world. You will not sink is the message of God. The presence of God makes a difference. A presence always makes a difference. Some of you guys are going to find this super helpful. Um, Studies have shown consistently uh, that... um, I'm choosing my euphemism well here. Those advanced in age uh, are found to live longer when there's something uh, else alive in the house, that they're just not all alone. And it almost doesn't even matter, like, what it is. It could be living with um, somebody who's nearly deaf and listens to the TV at volume, like, 79. It doesn't matter. Old people live longer when there's something else living in the house with them. I lost my euphemism. Sorry, guys. I recognize it, though. It doesn't matter if it's a person. It could be a dog. It could be a goldfish. It could even be a fern. Come on now. It could be anything. It could even be, I think, a little rabbit that somebody invited in their house because their daughter really, really wanted one and saved up for it. And if you want a rabbit like that, just come talk to me afterwards. I'm kidding. Just kidding. Please don't tell her. Presence makes a difference. Presence makes a difference. And you have the presence of a God who goes behind you to protect you, ahead of you, to guide you, over top of you, to watch over you, underneath you, to support you, and beside you, to befriend you. Presence makes a difference every time. And nothing can separate you from the love that is in Jesus. Number one is that you're in this storm with God's presence. Number two, infinitely harder, you are in the storm with God's purpose. That's difficult. That's hard to hear. Coming back up to verse 35, that's where we see Jesus ordering his disciples into the boat. And I just presume that the Son of God kind of knew 
that a squall was going to come up out of nowhere. He knew that the storm was going to happen, and yet it was still worth it. He also knew from what happens next in the story that there was a young man on the other side of that river who was caught up in a habit of self-harm that they called an evil spirit, and that it was increasing and threatening to take that young man's life. And so Jesus, as the Son of God, looking over to the other side, knew he's worth it. Get in the boat. We've got lives to save. And as they get into the boat, they didn't know why, but the storm comes. Now, I don't get this all the time. I don't know how any of this stuff works. I admit that I have a high view of the sovereignty of God. I need that. And that's how I read the Bible. And I don't know if God caused the storm. I don't know if God allowed the storm. I don't know if functionally there's even a difference between the two. But I do know that God uses the storm. I do know that that's a theme that we see scripturally again and again and again, and we need to be reminded of it. Boy, it seems like every week. That the half-brother, the literal half-brother of Jesus, James, his writing to his fellow Jewish believers, and he's writing to them scattered across the world because the persecution broke out because they had to leave their homes and leave their businesses and take who they could with them. In his opening of his letter, he says, consider it, brothers and sisters, pure joy when you face these kind of storms. Because the testing of your faith produces perseverance. May perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Jesus orders his disciples into the boat and into the storm because he knows that there's missing something. They get to the other side a little more mature and a little more complete than they started that day. You want to know the irony of the story? We get concerned about the storms. And sometimes we forget that there's a one behind the storm. Like we get concerned about the weather. But there's one that controls the weather. We get worried about our jobs. We get worried about our marriages. We get worried about our kids. We get worried about our health. But behind all of those things, there's a one in charge of it all. Why are you so afraid? Is it maybe because your eyes, my eyes, are focused on what's immediately in front of me instead of the one behind all of it? My prayer for us this week is that we would not waste our time worrying about the storm, what the storm might take. But we would consider what the one behind the storm might bring. Behind the thing that you bump up against you this week, there's a one. And if we would take time to get to know the one and how big and how powerful and how strong and how sovereign and how kingly that one is. Suddenly the thing 
doesn't seem so big anymore. When you find yourself afraid, and maybe it's in the car ride on the way home here today, just take a minute and ask, God, the one behind all of it, why am I so afraid? Maybe your next step is just to ask him. Let's ask him together. I invite you to stand up and let's go to the throne room of God this morning and just ask God, why are we afraid? God, is it a, is it a faith thing? Have we not taken the time to sit before your throne room in heaven? God, I, I pray that throughout our weeks and our devotional time, our prayer time, God, that your immensity would simply grow more and more and more, that we would see you as more than a simple teacher, as they refer to you in this story, but a Lord, a Savior, one who is infinitely greater and more powerful than we could ever imagine. That, God, you aren't simply a rabbi. You're nothing short of a king. You're the one behind the things. May we get to know you and your power, power over life and power over death. Jesus, we pray. Amen.